Hi there, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo, and I'm here with Dr. Robin Henry, historian and associate professor at Wichita State University, to dive into her work on the podcast Hindsight, Looking Back at 100 Years of Women's Suffrage. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start with some background about your expertise and your interest in the subject. Why, uh, why do you find this topic interesting? Why does it fascinate you? And what is something about it that we should all care about? This was something that was passed in the 1920s. It was ratified in a moment that um, kind of much like our own is very kind of fraught with racial divide and class strife and questions over who should and shouldn't be in power and who should and shouldn't be a citizen. And while those questions have um, kind of permeated a lot of American history, moments where they seem very peaked, passage of an amendment, um, our contemporary conversations, it just seems really interesting to look back and see how previous generations have done it. Now, I've always been interested in women's history. That's just what I was about to ask. <laughs> when did it start for you? What do you remember learning that kind of like triggered something for you? Oh my goodness. I was that really enthusiastic child um, around the age of six or seven that just got hooked into history. And a lot of the things that really um, felt interesting to me were stories about children or stories about women. I liked all of the other historical events, stories and kind of history lessons that we learned, but I really enjoyed learning what I eventually came to know was social history, the history of everyone else. Um, historians talk about it from the bottom up. So the great masses of people who are never going to be elected president, who are never gonna serve in Congress, who live extraordinarily regular lives, and yet are still making an imprint on their historical moment in small, medium, and sometimes in extraordinary ways that they couldn't have imagined. And so those types of stories have always really struck me as not only really interesting and fascinating, but also increasingly to me as a historian as important. So was there a, a person who you remember, a historical figure who you remember, you know, just striking you more than, more than others? really my time period is late 19th and early 20th century of US history. And so women that were involved in all sorts of civil rights movements, in um, movements about um, kind of women's culture and education have all really struck me as people who have made an impact and an influence not only on me and the way that I live my life. Um, I can look back at these women and say, okay, I wouldn't have, the life that I lead exists in many ways because of these women. As you explain in the first episode, there are a few different starting points that should be considered. Um, at what point do you also consider the, well, what point do you think is like the true origin of the movement? That's always a tough question for a historian to answer because there's never any one specific moment that is like the starting bell of an organized movement. Probably the most famous of the origins with um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the meeting at Seneca Falls. That's a really um, kind of interesting and amazing kind of touchstone, but those types of moments don't happen just out of the blue. And so kind of the origins that you can link back to enlightenment thinkers, women such as um, Mary Otis Warren, who had been writing about the revolution and women's rights. There's a lot of different conversations that are 
bubbling up as the United States is being formed and the ideas about democracy and citizenship and who has rights and who doesn't and what those look like are all being decided. And while no one was really outside of like really radical fringes were thinking that those rights should extend to all women or African-Americans or even in many cases, all white men, for the most part, they were relegated to property owning people um, that they were, that there were people who were starting to say, hey, we say these universal statements, but we don't apply them universally. What, what does that mean for us? You know, I don't know how many people, well, how many people are history buffs for one thing, but that, that really recognize just how different it was at the start of the country. Yeah. Um, in a lot of my um, classes, when we talk about this, I'll have people kind of all raise their hands and then we'll kind of take down our hands if we're of kind of an ethnic origin, if we're women, and then for men, if they're not property owners, and it's amazing to see just how few hands remain in the air. And for um, kind of founding fathers like John Adams, they thought that property ownership gave you a certain stake in the community, that you weren't just going to vote and flee, and that you had a real, <laughs> like, say that you couldn't just disentangle yourself. So however you voted was going to be more solemn because if you voted in a way that, you know, didn't work out well, you also had to live with the consequences. Wealth develops outside of just owning land. And so things like merchants and business owners who may own maybe a small portion of land, but their wealth is greater because of what they're producing. The issues of, um, of universal suffrage for men become important. Also, um, Andrew Jackson pushes hard for, um, for universal suffrage for white men. He doesn't do a whole lot for other people, but he pushes for that in a way that starts opening up questions about, well, if we can expand voting rights to white men, what, what, what are these lines that we've drawn? And if we've yeah. drawn them, can we move them? So um, as we've learned, uh, white women gained the right to vote in 1920, but of course, shockingly, this was uh, not extended to women of color until the 1960s. What, yeah, what happened there? How did that um, take so much longer to develop? Well, one of the reasons is that this is a federal amendment that's being applied in the states. So you have federal voting rights, and really the federal voting rights kind of recognition of them starts with the 15th Amendment. So the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, the Re Voting Rights Act of 1965, all speak to federal rights that you have as voters. Um, there were African-American women who could vote. If their states honored um, the 15th Amendment, um, with the 19th Amendment, women could, Black women could vote. So you have St. Louis women who were very active as both activists and labor rights activists and voters. You have women in Chicago who are voting. Ida B. Wells Barnett is voting actively in, um, in her elections. But one of the reasons that the 19th Amendment was initially stalled, why Wilson was opposed to it initially, was that um, it brought up questions of whether or not the 15th Amendment would need to be enforced. And Wilson was a Southerner. Um, Southern um, kind of democratic support was the bulwark of the Democratic Party, even through 
the mid-1960s. And so if they didn't want the 19th Amendment, if they didn't want to enforce the 15th Amendment, they sure didn't want to pass a second federal amendment about voting. So they didn't want, that's a federal amendment, but that was mostly by the 1920s, really by um, the 1880s, 1890s, being largely ignored in mm -hmm. Southern states. So you have the development of Jim Crow laws that disfranchise large numbers of African-Americans throughout the South. Not all states passed those laws. Um, so it was really kind of haphazard who could and couldn't vote. But the vast majority of African-Americans lived in the South. And so that meant that the vast majority, can, vast majority of African-Americans were disfranchised. Mm. So if you lived in a Northern state or a state that recognized, Western states would recognize um, African-American voting rights, at times, so if you lived in one of those states, you you were gonna be a woman who could vote. It's only once Southern representatives and senators kind of get the nudge, nudge, go ahead assurance that the 19th Amendment is not going to be any more, in, is not gonna require 15th Amendment enforcement. Wow. That they're okay voting for it. This only, changed in the 1960s when it all kind of got yeah. you know pulled together with civil rights yeah yeah and so the civil rights act the voting rights act of 1965 um takes away mm -hmm. um kind of the it disallows Jim Crow laws and it really enforces and requires the enforcement of the federal amendments and by extension the 19th amendment what wow. is holding up black women from voting is really the desire of black of um southern whites not wanting black people to vote mm -hmm. and so a lot of what is coming out with the black lives matter movement with me too with a lot of the social movements now very much touch on similar themes the people the specific issues may have changed a little bit but the themes themselves are very similar. In some circles, feminism is a dirty word. Um, what does feminism mean to you? Feminism is really just the recognition of the equality and equity between men and women. And in terms of equality, that is mostly designed down to choice. That if you want to choose to stay home and raise your children, that should be an equal and equitable choice that you can make as opposed to going into the workforce. That the ability to um, kind of have equal pay for what you do should not be a question. So it's really about the ability for you to participate in the fullness of what you imagine your life to be. So what are the next steps for women's activism? I think the question of intersectionality is going to be a huge one. Um, looking at the ways in which um, economic issues really affect women. Um, a lot of the issues that look like and sound like and are couched like social and cultural movements, in particular things like reproductive rights and or birth control, are also really tied in with economic rights. And so kind of looking at the, the ways in which economic and social rights for women intersect is gonna be another big, big issue. Also, um, 
healthcare just in general. Women are often the caretakers of parents, of children, of family members. They're the ones who are first called primarily from schools. They're the ones who are relied upon. And I think we're seeing that with the pandemic that um, kind of looking at the ways in which work family balance, we've had that conversation for a very long time, but how it's absolutely coming undone because all of the different infrastructures that were put in place, in particular things like daycare, um, are just absolutely not available or available in ways that are unaffordable or just unimaginable, um, are affecting women's lives in ways that they don't for men. So I think there's a number of ways in which um, conversations over race, over um, kind of legal protections, over economic issues are all going to be um, women's issues for the future. How um, does the United States compare to other similar countries in this regard uh, with voting rights? Well, the United States actually um, ahead of, was a little bit ahead of some of the European countries. European countries um, were kind of on the map of voting rights in the 20th century. You have a number of major powers that go after World War II, so that always is a little bit shocking. Probably the group of women that um, sees this change the most are actually Chinese American women. Um, who are not considered eligible for citizenship until 1943. Um, they had been excluded from citizenship and in many times they had been excluded from entering into the United States um, after the 1880s. And, but in 1943, very quietly, the um, American government signs the Manguston Act, which recognizes um, people of Chinese heritage who were born in the United States as citizens mainly because the United States and China were allies in the Pacific theater. And so World War II actually sees women in, um, of Chinese descent become citizens and eligible to vote. But many of their mothers and grandmothers who had come over from communist China or had lived in the United States, who were born in the United States, may have gone to China for a little bit and come back really saw some of those those voting rights being um, explored and that conversation was growing fairly heartily within the Chinese American community. As you got into this research deeper and deeper over the course of your career, what was the biggest surprise for you? I think it's always the number of women that were involved. I mean, I think that, I mean, you can read numbers. You can say like, you know, there were 60,000 women at this rally, or there were, you know, 20,000 in this protest, or the number, but the sheer numbers of people who involve themselves. The number of women that participate also who do not start out from a wealthy or upper class background, I think is extraordinary. The impact of the working class women, the um, African American women, Mexican American women throughout the 20th century is just extraordinary. And in fact, I don't think that the women's movement would have been as successful in 1920, maybe even successful at all without the support of working class women. The last push in the 19 teens is really just this influx of working class women, their energies, their conversation about the connections between labor laws that affect them and their ability to vote galvanizes millions of women across the country. 
So if you want um, kind of in the aftermath of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was this devastating fire in 1911, it kills 146 people. Most of them were young women. Most of them were immigrant born. Um, it's just, there, it, it happened a couple years after these massive waves of labor strikes asking for sprinkler systems, safety mechanisms within these gigantic um, factories and um, kind of uh, fire escapes that those simple requests for something that seems very logical for, to us today, when they were unmet, there's no place for the women who work in these factories to go. They went on strike. Many um, factories complied voluntarily. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory didn't. Um, I think that connection just really drives home the fact that your ability to stay safe is often connected to, to law. And if you don't have a voice in, you don't really have a voice. Those um, additions to the narrative are so important and really in many ways show us that almost anybody can be part of these movements. They're not, they're extraordinary women because of things that they did in the past and because of who they became. And we know them because they're historical figures. But that doesn't mean that, you know, all of the slots for extraordinary women have been filled. That there are extraordinary women who are participating in all sorts of social movements and organizations and workplace activities and, you know, raising their families and doing all of the things that people and women do today that were done in the 1920s, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so... I think those types of stories are really interesting because they show us that anyone can become an activist. Anyone can get involved. Maybe, you know, you don't have the organizational skills of a Susan B. Anthony. That's okay. Most people don't. She was an organizational dynamo. But, you know, maybe you don't have the just voracious writing capacity of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But maybe you have the ability to stand on a street corner. Maybe you have the ability to attend meetings. Maybe you have the ability to teach your children about equity. There's a lot of different ways that we can get involved. And I think that the, um, the amount of women, the depth of women, and the diversity of women that we're seeing talked about and discussed and celebrated during this moment allows us to see the possibility to open to the door for other people to see themselves as possible activists. Hmm. I want to ask you one more question. Since you're a historian, I will propose a time travel question. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back in time to any anywhere, like let's say in the United States, I guess, but to see something occur, what would be a historical event or maybe not an event what what would you like to go and 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 watch or study if you actually had that ability oh my gosh that's that's a horrible question to ask a historian because we <laughs> want to go everywhere all the time um just for your which, first trip you know yeah, for my first trip yeah um i actually think i would like to see physically see the 1913 um, women's suffrage um, parade. I, I mean, it's an incredibly dangerous moment. You know, they're just absolutely not protected by police. 
but I think the pageantry, the way that it was laid out, the ability for artistic creativity to be expressed toward women's suffrage was just extraordinary. The interest in having women of all professions kind of march in this parade just seems like it would be an interesting opportunity to see that in a way that, you know, maybe the, the Women's March in January of 2017 kind of gave you those visuals in obviously a different capacity and different role. Many more women and people participated in those. But just the, there are such artistry and historians and scholars have talked about the, that shift of pageantry of using the ability to put your body, but also put your artistic expression in public, I think is an extraordinary moment and one that I think would have been at least interesting to watch. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Henry, for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And to all of you, I hope you enjoyed our program. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo. Thanks again for joining me to honor the anniversary of the 19th Amendment.